0: So please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. The title is somewhat strange. It will be made clear in time. Okay? In time it will be made clear. 1 Peter chapter 5 from verse 1. We're going to be reading from verse 1. And would you stand for the reading of God's word? I understand that... uh, Darlene and Cordula went to Hosanna this morning and to give a presentation on OCC. These women are unstoppable. We have unstoppable people in church. It's wonderful. And they serve behind the scenes. And they're faithful and we're grateful to God for them. Therefore, I urge elders among you, as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not with greed, but with eagerness, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You, younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We bless you for your word. It is alive, it is timely, it is timeless. We thank you that we can read it. We ask, O Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds, for you inspired these words when Peter first penned them. And we need to know the truth and to make it clear to us. We ask that the Holy Spirit would do that special work of enlightening in the minds of your people. Draw those who are still in darkness to Christ, I pray, and be glorified today. In the wonderful and precious name of Christ, Amen. Please be seated. So we are reaching the end of First Peter. I was expecting hooray, no. And it also seems we're reaching the end of COVID nineteen. For that, hooray! It's been a very unpredictable ride. Who would have imagined that COVID-19 would have lasted this long? It would have impacted our lives as it has. As a church, we've continued to minister to all those who participated at the various gatherings, and we thank God for that. Whether on Zoom or in live, thanks in large part to a dedicated team of men and women who have served without wavering. We have not dropped the ball in these months. Isn't that something? even as we come to the, end, to the end of this stretch. With the encouragement, prayers, and faithful financial support of God's people, the ministry of LCF has continued for the last year and a few months. It's been both effective and God-honoring. And we are indebted to God for His marvelous grace that has made all this possible. So today we're starting with 1 Peter chapter 5. And as we begin to dig into this chapter... Let's remember the audience that Peter is writing to. Believers who lived in Asia Minor, the names of the church appear in the first chapter, in the first verses, and in all likelihood, these were a mix of Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, who were, of course, suffering for the sake of Christ, being persecuted for their faith, both by Gentiles, Romans, the Greeks, and by Jews alike. He's writing to these believers to encourage them. That's his audience. Aliens who were the true aliens. (laughs) People ask me all the time, are there aliens? Yes, there are. They're here on earth. Yes, there are. Really, who are they? The Church of Jesus Christ. They're on your street. They're everywhere. People who love the Lord. We're aliens. We're the the only aliens that matter. Every other alien that exists, it makes no difference. And we are the aliens living in this world who do not belong to this world. We live in this world, but we're not of it. And that in itself is a unique situation. And so he's been writing to these aliens, to these believers, living in the Roman Empire. But what he has been saying is so counterintuitive. Rejoice when you're suffering. (laughs) When things are taken away from you, the spirit of Christ is on you. When you're being maligned, speak well of them. You're living stones. You are the household of God. Everything is so counterintuitive. I can imagine these believers reading this and goes, "Wow, I didn't know this." But you can read something and then quickly forget it. So, how can words become reality? But so they don't stay on paper. You need men and women who walk the talk. Men and women who walk the talk. So that when we see Christians who are suffering and rejoicing, we remember 1 Peter, yes, it's possible because look at this person. Look at this brother. Look at someone like Lennox and Michelin. Look at others like Carmi. Anyone who's suffering, anyone who's going through difficulty, look at them. They're rejoicing even as they suffer. We need someone that walks the talk. But most importantly, we need men who will ensure, who are the gatekeepers of the church so this teaching is repeated over and over, who walk the talk, who teach this life, this life of aliens who are believers in Christ, who love the Lord And teach the church not to be conformed to the world in which they live. Elders. For this reason, Peter stops speaking to the church. He takes a pause. And he addresses the elders. He focuses on them. Four verses for them. Interesting, isn't it? And that's why I've chosen this title. Stopping the Spirit of Jezebel. It won't be made clear today. You'll have to hang on for a few more weeks to understand what I'm saying. What we're going to be looking at today, however, are three unmistakable points that stand out right from the beginning of Peter's address to the elders. I will deal with these points by asking three questions. First question, to whom are the elders accountable? To whom are the elders accountable? It's a very important question. Many pastors feel they're accountable to no one. They have the anointing of God. I answer to the Lord alone. That's how they speak. And some will say, look, look at um, Acts chapter 20. Paul calls the elders from Miletus, the elders that, that lived in Ephesus, that served in Ephesus, he calls them and he meets with them alone. He doesn't meet with them in front of the church But what he shares with them is known to the church. Others will look at Acts chapter 15, when the elders and the apostles got together to discuss a problem that was happening at the church at the time. Jewish believers were imposing the Mosaic law, the Mosaic diet, Mosaic festivals on the Gentile believers. And so the elders and apostles got together to discuss this issue. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. It is the first council of the church. And so they say, elders and apostles got together. They are special, aren't they? But still, many pastors see that as we decide, the pastor decides, and no one else is involved. But what they decided was made known to the church. The process involved was made known to the church. The decision, because it impacts doctrine, was made known to the church. The elders have an area of responsibility. Their area of responsibility is doctrine, discipline, direction. And it stops there. It doesn't go any further. Doctrine, discipline, direction. The instructions... Given at that council, the council of Jerusalem was, you stay away from things that are sacrificed to idols, stay away from fornication, do not engage in sexual immorality, and stay away from blood, which means in their diet, so that you can at least stay, have fellowship with Jewish Christians. And that's all. There was no imposition of the Mosaic law. It had to do with doctrine. But the process, how it happened, was not a secret process. It was made known to the entire church. And the decision rendered by the elders, along with the apostles, was also made known so that everyone could follow and to according to the decision. So why is it that many pastors today, many elders, but pastors in particular, feel that they are an elite group, that they are special? I don't know why. I really I think it's human nature. I really think it's human nature. There is a fundamental difference between the leadership of the New Testament and the leadership of the Old Testament. If you look at Moses in the Old Testament, it's completely different from the leadership that we have in the New Testament. When he writes to elders, Peter, he does it in the presence of the church. That's why he stops. He writes to the elders and he wants the entire church to know what he's telling the elders. Otherwise, he would have written a separate letter to the elders. He doesn't do that. He writes to the elders in the presence of the church. So the church knows what he's saying to the elders. Paul does the same in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. This is an interesting passage. I'm not sure if you've paid attention you read this verse. Colossians 4, 17. Paul is writing to the church of Colossus. He's writing to the Colossian believers. And then he says this out of the blue. Verse 17. Tell Archippus, see to the ministry which you've received in the Lord so that you may fulfill it. Imagine saying that. Imagine saying, some, imagine someone writing to the church of, here of LCF and telling you, tell John that he fulfills his ministry. It isn't right to me. <laughs> Privately, <laughs> He writes to you. You know why? Because the ministers, the elders, the pastors, are accountable to you. That's why. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of John Knox. He was uh, a man who lived in the 1500s. He was prepared for the ministry. He lived in Scotland. And people were really blessed by his ministry, but he did not want to go into ministry. So he would have home groups. <laughs> he would... Blessed people with some teaching, but he felt, no, no, I have to go into the ministry. I cannot go." <laughs> so the church did something very unusual. <laughs> they went to their pastor, and they said, "This is what we want you to do. We want you to charge John Knox publicly to enter the ministry." The pastor was, "How can I do that?" Because the God's word says that you can do that." And they showed him this passage: "We want you. To represent us. And on Sunday during the message. You turn to John Knox. And you say certain words. And these were the words. That um, this pastor. On behalf of the congregation. Said to John Knox. And he said. Brother. You shall not be offended. Albeit. Excuse the old English. That I speak to you. That I received as a charge. So John Knox. Charge! Who has charged the pastor to speak to me? Even from all those that are here present. And John Knox looks at everybody. And he's shaking right now. Which is this. In the name of God and of his son Jesus Christ and in the name of these that presently call you by my mouth, I charge you that you refuse not this holy vocation, but that as you esteem or value the glory of God, the increase of Christ's kingdom, the edification of your brethren, and the comfort of me, whom you understand well enough to be oppressed by the multitude of labors, because I've had it, I need help, John, that you take upon you the public office and charge of preaching, even as you look to avoid God's heavy displeasure, and desire that he shall multiply his graces with you. <laughs> well, John Knox broke into tears, and he didn't know what to do, and just walked out for several days. He hid himself in his house until he came out and decided to obey the Lord that spoke through the church. That's what Paul was doing as his archipist, and that's what Peter's doing here. He's telling elders, and he's telling them, in the presence of the members. Elders are not the elite placed on some pedestal. They are not the anointed of the Lord who cannot be corrected, who cannot be charged, and cannot be challenged. Sadly, there are churches that have embraced this cultish way of viewing ministry. And this is why Peter speaks to the elders in the presence of the church. When we give a charge to those who are in the ministry, we do it publicly Because it's the church that is placing that charge on that brother. It's the church. Had Peter not wanted to make the elders accountable to the church, he would never have addressed them in this manner. He would have said, I'm going to protect their ego. I'll speak to them privately. He didn't do that. There's no ego to protect. Why does Peter not use his authority? Second question. Look at how he speaks. Therefore, I urge elders among you as your fellow elder. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't call himself an apostle. He's speaking to fellow elders. And he doesn't command. He urges. Why? Peter does not use the Moses approach. Peter does not command the elders as to what their responsibility are. Rather, he urges them. Peter does not come across as the Pope. He is not their superior. He appeals to them as a fellow minister. Peter's approach was to say the least revolutionary. Peter speaks as a servant. How do servants speak? They urge. They appeal. Notice, it's very important. I urge elders among you. Was not Peter an apostle? Did he not have the right to command the elders, to give them orders? Think about it, didn't he? Could he have said, as an apostle, I am the one of the twelve. In fact, I am the first of the twelve. I'm the one who has the keys. He could have said, gone on and on. He didn't do that, did he? There's only one possible explanation as to why Peter does not use The authoritarian approach. Peter does not see himself as the head of the church. There's only one head. It's Christ Jesus. Peter saw himself as a servant. Only Christ has the right to command his church, not man, regardless of how elevated someone may be in the church, how esteemed he may be. Peter was highly esteemed. I mean, someone who brought dead people to life was esteemed person who spoke on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 come to Christ was esteemed. But he is not the head of the church. He can't command. He can't boss around. Peter's style of leadership differs greatly from the Old Testament model. In the Torah, you will notice that Moses' approach was authoritarian. Let me show you by reading Moses' words to God's people. Deuteronomy 27, verse 10. If you, In fact, if you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and especially Deuteronomy, you will find Moses commanding, commanding constantly. Verse 10 in chapter 27. So you shall obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you. Deuteronomy is full of that. I am commanding you. Deuteronomy is a book written from Moses To the people. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is different. He writes as a stenographer, and God told Moses. And then Moses told the people, as if, who's Moses? He should have said, and then I went and told the people. He doesn't do that. He says, God told Moses, as though Moses is another person. And Moses told the people, right? That's him. He's a stenographer, but not Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Moses speaks as though it's him. I am telling you. I am commanding you. In fact, he tells the people off several times in Deuteronomy. It's a very unique book of the Torah. And you find him correcting, rebuking, commanding. Anyone who challenged Moses' authority, such as Korah, remember that? Korah said, hey, I'm a Levite. What makes you better than me? God says, let me open the earth, swallow you up, next You couldn't. You could not challenge his authority. You can challenge mine. You could not challenge Moses. There was no way. No way. There was no ambiguity about that. Moses commanded, the people of Israel obeyed. There are pastors today that want to be obeyed in every area of life. That is unscriptural. Doesn't exist in the New Testament. Doesn't exist. Moses was literally God's mouthpiece. The apostles never used this approach with God's people. Never. Some men today will say, Not only I am the pastor, I am the apostle, I am the prophet, I am not to be criticized. And if you criticize me, God will judge you. And they bring curses down on people, and people are terrified of criticizing the pastor, of critiquing. Now, I'm not saying you're... Spo- I'm, <laughs> I'm using this as a punching bag. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying. But you know what I mean. There are pastors that constantly use the Moses style of leadership and see themselves as a Moses in the church. There are no Moses today. Moses was replaced by one. His name is Jesus Christ. That's it. We are servants And we are unworthy servants. This is hard work. It's hard work being an elder. Pastors are constantly commanding their people and expecting God's people to do everything they say. Most churches are led by the one pastor model who runs the entire show. If there's one thing the Lord has put in my heart, my wife knows, is to have a team of men around me We've tried that in the past, it didn't work out, and I thank God that it didn't because I had to learn much more, but now we're grooming another group of men, and we thank God for the way things are developing. We're really grateful to God. These pastors do not want to be challenged. These elders do not want to be challenged. That is ungodly. Not only are elders to be challenged, they are to welcome the challenge. They are to welcome. I am to receive any challenge. I am to receive correction. As long as it's done in the spirit of love, why not? The Moses model of leadership does not belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Look at Paul's words to, in his letter to the Corinthians when speaking about a fellow servant. And we see how Paul was completely a servant, in dealing with his fellow servants. 1 Corinthians 16:12. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly, notice his words, I strongly encouraged him to come to you with the brothers. So there was a delegation of brothers going to Corinth. And then he turns to Apollos, who was a gifted speaker, but he was not an apostle. He was a man of God, but not an apostle. And so, in some ways, he was subordinate to Paul, and Paul turns to him and says, I want you to go as well. But listen to uh, Paul's answer. But it was not at all his desire to come now. Imagine. Imagine, why didn't Paul pull, I believe by the Spirit that you should go? He didn't do that. He strongly encouraged. That's a different kind of leadership, isn't it? If that was Moses, Moses said, you go. No questions asked. That's <laughs> it. It's not Moses. That's the New Testament. Paul allowed Apollos to decline his request. Apollos had the freedom to say no to Paul. You try to say no to some pastors today. You'll be ousted. You'll be put out. They'll make you feel like dirt because you said no to the pastor. You said no to the anointed one. That's such malarkey. The elder's authority is limited to three things. Please remember this. Please write them down somewhere. One, doctrine. Doctrine. What does the word of God say? What is the doctrine according to scripture? The sound doctrine, that is where his authority is. Second, discipline that makes making sure that sin does not continue in the church. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Though absent in body, I am with you in spirit, we are going to discipline this brother. He joins with them in disciplining someone who was walking in sexual immorality, living flagrantly his immorality. And so Paul joins with the church and they discipline this individual because they love the church, they love the name of Christ, they love this brother. That's where the elders kick in. The elders kick in in doctrine, the elders kick in in discipline. Three, the elders kick in in direction. Direction. What is the direction we are taking as a church? Are we going to be egalitarian? Are we going to be complementarian? Are we going to embrace social justice? Are we going to embrace wokeism? What is the direction we are taking? This is where the elders kick in. Doctrine, discipline, direction. That's it. You don't have to ask me about what car to buy. What woman to marry. I can give you an opinion, but I could be wrong. You could challenge my opinion. I told people, look, I don't think you should get married. And their marriage went very well. I told others, I'm really happy you're getting married. And they broke up. Please do not ask me if you should get married with someone. Don't. I can give you advice. But that is not my area of expertise. Doctrine. Discipline. Direction. That's what elders are responsible for. Nothing more. That's why we have a board where we decide many things that don't pertain to those three areas. They don't, they just pertain to other areas. And we debate them, and sometimes they don't agree with me. Many times they're right. Other times, fewer, I'm right. But that's okay. Those are opinions. There are people in church that are far more wiser, far more expert than I am. I am not the anointed of the Lord in everything. Ask my wife. <laughs> Believe me, I make a whole bunch of mistakes. I make a whole bunch of mistakes. But somehow people, I'm going to ask the pastor, people calling me in which car to buy. Really? Well, why would they ask me that? I <laughs> don't get it. Another example of... Uh, Paul's model of leadership found in his letter to Philemon. In this personal letter, we see Paul writing to a leader of the church of Colossus. His name is Philemon. Maybe he was one of the elders. I'm not sure. I think he was. doesn't matter. And Philemon had a slave that, run away, that ran away. rather. His name was Onesimus. And Paul met this slave in prison while he was... In prison, they must have been, because slaves could not be without their owners. And they caught him and they brought him into prison. And who did he find in prison? He finds Paul. And somehow, Paul finds out that Onesimus was a slave from the house of Philemon. And Philemon was his friend, a servant of the Lord in the church of Coloss. And Paul led Onesimus, rather, to the Lord. See, in those days, if you were a slave, And I was free. I would not talk to you, and you would not talk to me. The very fact that Paul engaged in a conversation shows that Paul treated him with dignity. But not only he does more than that. Paul, he writes to Philemon, and this is the way he writes. Philemon has one chapter, so from verse ten, he writes this way: "I appeal. I could have ordered. I'm an apostle." I'm telling you, Philemon, this is what you're going to do. Doesn't do that. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I fathered in my imprisonment. In other words, I brought him to Christ, who previously was useless to you. Obviously, because he was a runaway slave, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart, whom I wanted to keep with me so that in your behalf he might be at my service in my imprisonment for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything, notice, without your consent. He involves him. See, notice how he does it. He appeals to him. And he goes, this is what really should be done. But I'm going to lead you. I'm going to show you how it's done. But I'm not going to command you. I'm not going to order you. He uses words with precision, laser sharp, and he leads Philemon to make the right choice. That's what an elder does. He persuades. He woos. He doesn't order. He doesn't command. I do not want to do anything without your consent so that your goodness, notice why he does it, he does it so that he says, I'm going to make you shine, Philemon. I want you to treat this man who has caused you great hurt financially has maybe caused others to do the same thing. We don't know what happened with the, um, the fact that he escaped this way. But I want you to shine in this moment, Philemon, so that your goodness will not be in effect by compulsion. I don't want you to feel obliged to do this. I want it to come right from your heart, but of your own free will. Isn't that beautiful? That's what an elder does. That's hard work. It's not easy. I always tell people, you know what? I am paid by a church that every week I'm called to correct revenge. Imagine. I could, pay my, I could speak myself out of a salary. It's hard work, very hard work. Paul avoids commanding Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother in Christ. Paul had every right to command. He doesn't. When speaking to his fellow brother in Christ, he doesn't resort to orders. He makes extra sure that Philemon does not feel that he is below himself. Paul urges. He appeals. He persuades. This is the language of the New Testament elder. Now there's not someone who goes around giving orders he's not a bully you know how many times people have told me you need to tell that brother what to do no I don't no I don't I need to do what the Lord asks me to do already the work of the elder is difficult in itself consequently the elder has no right to be offended when his advice is not heeded if I give you an advice on something because you asked me and you don't do what I tell you that's okay Now, if God's word says something and you don't do it, then I'm concerned. And that's what the elder does. The elder shows concern when God's word is not heeded. He prays. He goes up to the person. He tries to talk to him. This is what the word of the Lord says. We love you. That's different. But the elder does not use his authority to bully. If Peter and Paul did not adopt the model of leadership that Moses had, why do we think we could do otherwise? So what is the relationship of the elder vis-a-vis the church? Notice this. Therefore, I urge elders, what does the word say? Among you. Among you. The elders are among. The elders are not over. I am not over. I am just right now because of this platform. I am not over you. No elder is over the people of God. We are among the people of God. Now, if you look at Moses' example, we see that he was over the people of God. He was placed above everyone, everyone, including his brother, who was high priest, and his sister, who was greatly used of God. Her name was Miriam. But one day, Miriam and Aaron went up to Moses, the high priest, and Miriam, his sister, the one who saved Moses when he was still an infant, remember that, placed him in a basket and made and followed the basket down the Nile River until Pharaoh's daughter picked up the basket. Well, we have here two individuals who were very important in Moses' life. And they go up to him and say, Moses, you married a Cushite. You should never have married a Cushite. They correct him. <laughs> Big mistake. Big mistake. Yes, they were older than he was. Yes, they were highly used of God. Yes, they were important in the eyes of the people, but Moses was above everyone else. This is what happens. In Numbers chapter twelve, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite. Now, some people say he married a black woman because Cushites were typically black. Please understand that's not the reason why they were upset at him. There's no color problem in those days. We made it a problem today. It was a fact that he was, she was not a Hebrew. She was outside of the Hebrew people, a Kushite. And say, why would you do that? Now, some say, but then, wasn't she already married? Or rather, already married? Yes, most likely. His first wife died. Remember, he lived up to 120. and That's a long life. So his first wife must have died, and he remarried. But he married a Kushite. Obviously, someone who feared the Lord, because why would he marry someone was an idol worshiper, he wouldn't do that. God wouldn't let him. So they they say to him, is it a fact that the Lord has spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? He has. Look at Miriam, she prophesied. Look at Aaron, he would constantly speak on God's behalf to the people of God. And the Lord heard this, look what it says. Now the man Moses was very humble. He didn't say a word, he just stood there and he thought, I did wrong. I shouldn't have married a Cushite. And he just lowers his head. More than any other person on the face of the earth. And the Lord suddenly said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, You three, come to the tent of meeting. And so the three of them went. And the Lord came down in a pillar, and they thought, Yeah, God is going to support us in this. The Lord comes down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, now hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. It is not this way for my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, that is openly and not using mysterious language. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So why will you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? And the anger of the Lord burned against them. And he departed. Boy, that was terrifying. Immediately after that, Miriam is struck with leprosy. You cannot, you could not speak against Moses under no circumstance. You couldn't say this. Moses, I don't like the shoes you're wearing. Bang! You couldn't say anything. Moses was a servant of the Lord, he was God's mouthpiece. He represented God. That's not the New Testament. Paul was criticized over and over. Never once does Paul say to the Corinthian church that criticized him heavily, I mean heavily, I bring a curse upon you. May you be struck with leprosy. No, he said, the more I love you and the less I'm loved. He kept serving this church that belittled his ministry. That opposed him, that didn't agree with him. He kept trying to win them. Read that entire letter. Now you see he's a man of God pleading, earnestly pleading, weeping, praying, pleading. (laughs) That's what Paul does. That's what the elder does. Unfortunately, today you have pastors who feel that they're just like Moses. You cannot touch me. Don't speak against the anointed of the Lord. Don't you dare. I am the anointed of God, and don't you speak against me. That's what they say over and over. I'm the anointed of the Lord. That is ridiculous. We, the church, is anointed. We have the anointing. That's what John says in his first letter. There are evangelists and pastors who live lavish lives, like celebrities, and people are not permitted to say a word. They have many, many cars, and many houses, and planes, you know and don't say a word because I'm going to call the curse of God on you. People are threatened. We need correct a pastor. The role of the elder is one of the servant among the people of God. Now, God's people are not the masters of the servant of the Lord. We know that. Christ is the master. But they are accountable to the church. And to be an elder is hard work. As an elder, I'm not here so that people place me on some special pedestal to be honored above everyone else. You're not to follow blindly everything I say. In fact, you are called to judge what I say, to see if it's in line with Scripture. Not only must I not be offended when your criticism, you're there, there's a criticism of my message, my advice, my opinion but I must receive it with humility and evaluate it. That's what elders do. And if someone can't do this, he has to learn to do this because it's not in our nature. Most of us are like children. As soon as we get criticism, we, flay, we, we get upset. We, we, we try to protect ourselves. An elder is one who has learned to take criticism, like a father takes criticism from his children, like a mother takes criticism from her children. The elder is one who's learned to do this. Sadly, many pastors feel they feed rather off of the accolades they receive off of God's people. And they fall for the Moses style of leadership, and the people support the Moses style of leadership. You have thousands of churches where it's run by one man who remains unchallenged, and then you have that one man eventually falling. And wreaking such havoc and causing the name of the Lord to be blasphemed. Paul flatly condemns this style of leadership. The celebrity status. Look at First Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 4. For when one person says, I am of Paul... And another, I am of Apollos. In other words, I enjoy Paul's ministry. Well, I enjoy Apollos' ministry. I find him to be very effective with his Greek. He knows the language so well. He does such a wonderful job of delivering the message. He is so gifted. And that's what they would do. They would compare one to the other. I am with Paul. I am with Apollos. Aren't you behaving like everyone else? Seeking celebrities. We want celebrities. We we need celebrities. Paul says there's no celebrity in the church. There's only one. His name is Jesus. We're servants. That's what we are. Servants through whom you believe. God used us, unworthy servants, with our weaknesses, with our shortcomings, and He used us and He brought you to Himself. So then, verse 21 no one is to be boasting in people. Do not boast in a pastor. Don't pit one pastor against another, he says. Don't you dare do that. We're servants. It's all we are. Now, when people come to me and say, John, you know, when you speak, you don't speak like the other pastors. Oh, it's amazing. There's part of me that wants to embrace that and say, thank you, my brother. I I was looking forward to that. But I have to kill that every week. I have to kill that. We have to kill it. And you have to help me kill it. All things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. It says you're the church and the servant. Imagine a bride and she's getting ready for her wedding and there are people working around her, preparing her dress, taking care of the jewelry, making sure that her shoes are, are, are... look beautiful and they fit well and she's not in pain and, and they just take care of her hair and someone's taking care of her eyebrows and whatever else they do, I don't know, the whole thing. But you know, nobody's looking at the people around saying, Wow, I like the way you do it. Oh it's amazing. Everybody has their eyes and their gaze on the bride. And that's what we are as elders. We work around and making sure the bride is ready for the bridegroom. No one should have their eyes fixed on us. No one. So when we come with doctrine, it's because we're preparing the church. We come with discipline, it's because we're, we're preparing the church. We come with direction, we're preparing the church. We're looking at the church. How can we get the church equipped for good works? How do we get the church ready for the bridegroom? How do we get the church released so that it loses the gifts that God has given her for the glory of God? That's what we're concerned about. It is not that, oh, John says this. It doesn't matter what I say. It's what the Lord says doesn't matter. No personality cult in the church. There's no room for it. There's no room for the personality cult. Now we have one person who carried this out perfectly. Perfectly. It's Jesus Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 to 8. It says, Paul writing to this church says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in the presence, in appearance rather, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Did Jesus draw attention to himself? He could have. But Isaiah tells us that he had nothing comely. He wasn't attractive in appearance. Was Jesus charismatic? No, he was not. He comes as a nobody. His interest was to lay down his life for his bride. He loved his church, and he loved her right to the very end. He paid the ultimate price. That's our example. That's our example. May the Lord raise up elders who follow that example. Death to self. Death to self. Because if we don't die to self, we cannot be the elders God wants us to be. We can't. And God give us grace to die to self. Please pray for me that this, what I spoke about today, that the Lord put in my heart throughout this week, and I had great difficulty putting it together because I wasn't all that focused. I wasn't, I had a hard time. But God has given me grace to do it and to deliver today. Please pray that God will give men to LCF who follow this model of leadership that I just spoke of. This model. Nothing else. Men who do not draw attention to themselves. Men who do not go around acting like bullies. Men that do not adopt a Moses style of leadership. Men who serve, welcome criticism, and follow the example of Christ. It's hard work. May God grant us the grace to fulfill it. Pray with me, will you? So Father, we come to you with grateful hearts. Thank you for revealing truth to us. We need it. We need it every single day. The more we grasp the truth that is in your word and the more we are refreshed, encouraged, and when we welcome it and when we flesh it out, there's such joy in obeying you. And we want to obey you as a church. We have wonderful people in this body, Lord. But we know how the Enemy can be very crafty and subtle with his ideas. Deliver us from that mindset that we only a few men can give orders in this church. Only the pastor can speak and he has the final authority. Deliver us from that mindset that says we cannot be criticized, we cannot be challenged. Help us to see, O Lord, from your word, what is the right stance for elders in this church and then to serve as you would want us to serve in a manner that is pleasing to you and brings glory to the name of Christ. Thank you again for this beloved church, this flock that belongs to you, every single one of them. Strengthen with your grace, O Lord. Thank you again for this afternoon, and now we're about to break bread together. Be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen.